Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Sex therapists work with the full spectrum of sexual interests. However, many of them haven't received much in the way of training when it comes to people who have an interest in kink or BDSM. This creates an opportunity for biases on the part of the therapist to creep into the therapeutic process because they might encounter things that make them uncomfortable or that they're totally unfamiliar with. So today's episode is going to be all about navigating sex therapy with kinky clients. We're going to discuss some of the most common issues that come up when kinky people seek out therapy, how to successfully navigate power dynamics in the therapy office, and what to do when a client's sexual interests make you uncomfortable or carry a very high risk of harm to themselves or to their partners. We're also going to talk about how to find a kink-affirming therapist and explore resources for therapists who want to get more training in this area. I am joined by Stephanie Gerlich, award-winning author of The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. Stephanie recently published a sequel to this book called Kink-Affirming Practice, Culturally Competent Therapy from the Leather Chair. Stephanie is a certified sex therapist, a board-certified diplomate of sexology, and an expert voice in the popular media. Stephanie is also a member of the teaching faculty at the University of Michigan Sexual Health Certificate Program. This is going to be a fascinating and very practical conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Women are often left in the dark when it comes to sexual health and wellness, and this is especially true when they reach their 40s and beyond. It's time to change that. The Scarlet Society is here to help you explore what it is that brings you pleasure, give you the tools you need to take charge of your sexual health, and cultivate the relationships you deserve. Over at scarletsociety.com, you'll find a wealth of informational and educational articles, podcasts, and videos. You'll also discover community support and social networking, as well as curated product selections to level up your intimate life. It's your new home for trusted resources aimed at helping women navigate sex and love after age 40. Check the show notes for the link or visit scarletsociety.com to learn more and liberate your sexuality. Beducated is like Netflix for better sex. They have a library of online courses with more than 100 hours of content to help you level up your intimate life. Their courses can be completed individually or with a partner, and you can learn about a ton of topics, including kink and BDSM. Their Dominance and Submission course runs you through everything you need to know, from consent communication and negotiation, to ideas for things to try, to aftercare. It's full of practical guidelines to help you and your partner get exactly what you want. You can try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, which I know you will, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Many people who seek out sex therapy have an interest in kink, but most therapists don't get a whole lot of training in this area. So as a starting point, how much training do therapists usually get on this topic? And what kinds of messages are they being taught around kink and BDSM in their educational programs? So if we're talking about just general mental health providers, the answer is effectively none. 
if somebody is lucky enough to be in a program that either mandates a human sexuality course or offers it as an elective, they might get a paragraph or two in a textbook. They might get perhaps a guest speaker or a single video. But at no point in one's training as a mental health provider is kink and BDSM explored in any depth. Where you might touch on it, and this becomes a problem for clients later on, is when you're learning sort of your DSM and when you're learning your diagnostics, because it will come up in the discussion of the paraphilic disorders. And sure, a lot of professors will acknowledge, you know, the DSM says that this has to be causing distress to the client or causing distress to others around them or impacting their lives in problematic ways. But there's no context for what that means. And there's no time to really dive into those disclaimers or those qualifiers. And so the vast majority of mental health providers are graduating and going into licensure with their only understanding of BDSM and kink being what they've learned about pathological manifestations in the DSM. And that often translates over into um, some pretty significant blind spots. Absolutely. And, you know, whether or not you go into the field of sex therapy specifically and go on and pursue further certifications and training, no matter what, you're going to have people who come to you as a therapist or mental health provider who are going to be talking about sex-related issues. And so it is important to have an understanding of sexual diversity, but we're really failing our students in a lot of ways by not making that a core part of their training. You know, I've talked about this on the show many times before, having worked in counseling psychology PhD programs, there's at best, one course in their entire four-year training program that covers sexuality and relationship issues. And so I would always make it my goal to add some stealth sex ed into any course that I was teaching because students just weren't getting enough of it. So we can definitely do better in that area. And toward the end of the show, we'll talk more about some of the specific resources you can point people to to get more training in this area. But let's turn to some of the common issues that might come up in sex therapy with kinky clients and how to deal with them. So based on conversations I've had with other sex therapists, there's often a lot of shame on the part of the client about their sexual interests. And some of them are going to therapy with the express goal of changing their sexual desires precisely because of that shame. Basically, they want to undo the kink, if you will. So how do you deal with a problem like sexual shame in the therapy office? And what do you tell people who have kinky fantasies or interests and want to get rid of them? So I might be a little unique in my approach because prior to doing my MSW studies, I spent five years in seminary training to be a rabbi. So a lot of my clients are coming from a place of religious shame of being told not just that being kinky is weird, but that it's sinful. And so one aspect of my work is unpacking that from the spiritual or religious perspective and looking at where that shame is rooted in religious trauma and in messages of interpretation around religious belief as opposed to what's actually in scripture, for example. When my clients want me to, I will throw down a good theological debate in defense of kink. I don't bring religion into sessions where, you know, there's not consent to have that topic, but a lot of my clients enjoy that and that's a part of the work that we do. 
The other part for the clients that perhaps that's less of a factor is really looking at what it means to be a sexual creature and to look at what sexuality is in general. I will often make analogies to they're imperfect analogies, but I like to use things like, you know, diabetes. I have had clients who come from long lines of military families who their entire job, everything they ever wanted to do was to grow up and go and serve their country. And then they get a medical diagnosis that precludes that. And they feel a lot of guilt and shame for not being able to do what they were always told was the right thing and for not being what they were always told was the right person. And there's a lot of parallels there when we look at how much of our sexuality is mutable and changeable and how much of it isn't. And are we best served by mourning the person that we were told we should be, or are we best served by learning to accept and validate and affirm the person that we are and the body that we were given and the wiring that we have? And so I like to work through aspects of guilt and shame by taking the myth and the esoteric side out of sexuality and reduce it down to, ultimately, we're talking about stuff that the body does. And you're responding to this in a way dramatically different than you would to anything else your body does. And that makes me curious about why. I love that answer. And there's so much to think about and explore there. But Yes, I mean, dealing with shame is a tough issue, but there are some very important cognitive reframes you can do along the lines of what you were suggesting. And you're so right that when it comes to changing our sexual interests, you know, there are some things that are easier to change than others. But when people have a strongly held sexual interest in something like kink, that tends to be pretty resistant to change. One thing you can do is you can often cultivate new sexual fantasies or interests, but it seems to be very difficult, if not impossible, to overwrite or override pre-existing sexual interests. I mean, if it were super easy to do, you know, we would have discovered a pretty reliable means of doing that by now. And lots of things have been tried in the past with very, very limited success. So, you know, understanding that it's very difficult to change these aspects of our sexuality is part of what can, I think, help us to come to better self-acceptance with parts of the self that maybe we have a complicated relationship with. Now, kink and BDSM are fundamentally about either eroticizing or playing with power differentials and dynamics. And when this becomes a core part of their identity, they may be living with these power dynamics 24-7. But the therapy office introduces its own power dynamic. So there's a power differential between a healthcare provider and their patient. How do you balance that power dynamic that the client is bringing in with the power dynamic that's involved in the therapeutic process? I think that is such an important question. And I think it is something that we as clinicians often take for granted. To give one example, there's a big debate in the world of sex therapy and and of clinicians who identify them as kinky themselves as to whether or not they should disclose that to their clients. You know, in the same way that some people say, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of intergenerational trauma around segregation and racism, and I want a clinician that is Black and understands that. It's makes sense that some clients would want a clinician that understands what it's like to be kinky or what it means to be in a a power exchange relationship. 
But for me, that idea of disclosure brings up some concerns about the power differential that you know, you're talking about. Because if I have a more submissive client who knows that I am in a dominant relationship with my own partner, is that going to influence how they receive my questions or my suggestions or the homework that I assign? Is that going to feel more of an obligation? Uh, conversely, if I have a dominant client who knows I'm in a dominant relationship, are they going to try and steamroll me? Is there going to be a power play even more than we already see in some clinical relationships? So for me personally, when I'm doing my consultations, when I'm doing training and supervision, I always encourage a wall between clinician disclosure and the client even when for other identity pieces, it might make sense because I think that that can disrupt the power differential more than other conversations might. And then I do think that clinicians have an obligation to be aware of the power that we hold just as therapists in general. Our licenses, depending upon your state or your country, give you a lot of power over the lives of your clients. Our case notes go to insurance companies, our diagnoses go into medical records. We can, with a stroke of a keyboard, create a lifelong stigma for a client. We can have people hospitalized. We can have people's children potentially removed. There are a lot of harms that we can do, sometimes necessarily and sometimes less so, because we hold the power to do that through our role. And I think that always being aware of the power of the therapeutic chair and the nature of our work in our society is crucially important because we always want to be advocates and allies and we want to build rapport with our clients and we want them to trust us. But I don't think we often consider what's going through the minds of a client when they first come in to see us. And we don't always recognize sort of the mental calculus around what they choose to tell us and what they choose not to because of the power that we have that we don't usually think about. That's such a great answer. And it has me thinking, you know, there should be a whole course on this in any therapy training program about these power dynamics and also how they intersect with that world of BDSM and kink as well. It's just a natural opportunity to talk about this because I think a lot of people kind of take it for granted or don't think about it all that much. So I appreciate you sharing your insight there. So let's say you're a therapist and you have a client come in who has a kink and that kink makes you uncomfortable. Maybe it's a form of edge play, such as race play, in which people explore racialized dynamics or maybe reenact traumatic events that many people find to be deeply uncomfortable. So what should a therapist do in a case like this when a client expresses asexual interest or kink that the therapist is just totally uncomfortable with? I've been in that situation, which always surprises people because, you know, this is what I do and specialize in and write about and train about and consult on. And the idea that I've had clients that have made me deeply uncomfortable is often surprising to people, but it's happened. And I think, number one, we need to honor that the way we would any other emotion that comes up for us about a client or about a client practice. And I think it's okay to spend time considering where that emotion is coming from. I do not work with substance users. It's not a part of my practice. I have intentionally sought no additional information or continuing ed or certification because I'm the child of two addicts. 
And I know where my limits are. I know how I'm going to feel about certain scenarios or experiences. And I know that I'm not the right person for those clients and they deserve better than what I can give them. So I do think it is always okay to be aware of your limits and to refer out. To a certain extent, I would prefer that people refer out rather than cause harm by trying to do work where they genuinely are not in a place to do good work. On the same token, a lot of our clients practice relationship models or erotic behaviors or just fun hobbies like pet play, you know, sort of that serious leisure that can make it difficult for them to find anyone who's going to get it and resonate and immediately affirm. And so I do think it behooves us as we're doing that reflective piece, that should I refer out piece, to be open to the idea that maybe this is a chance for me to learn too. And maybe this is a chance for me to sit with a tolerable level of discomfort in order to be a clinician for somebody who might not have anybody else. And it's okay to start from a place of, I don't know much about that, but I am willing to learn. I'm not going to ask you to teach me and I am here for you and we can do this together. It's okay to have a first client with a kink you've never experienced. Everybody, you know, encounters something new throughout their career. You don't have to be the expert in all things and you don't have to be comfortable with all things, but you need to be able to self-regulate through that discomfort in order to be present for somebody who might not have anybody else but you. And if you can't genuinely do that work from a place of compassion for yourself, compassion for them, if you feel like your reaction is so extreme that it's going to hinder your ability to do that, then it's okay to refer them out. That doesn't make you a bad therapist. That doesn't make you a kink-shaming person. It just means that like me with substance use, you know where you are limited and you want what's best for that client, even if what's best is not you. Yeah, I think that's such a great answer. It's so important to know as a mental health provider what your own boundaries and limits are and the limits of your knowledge, but also to recognize that you know some people will have interests or problems or other issues that no one is going to be an expert in. And if everybody just keeps sending them down a referral chain, they might end up nowhere, you know, and never getting any kind of help. So there is also that value and importance of being able to step outside of your comfort zone sometimes and to work with certain issues that maybe you just don't have any experience with or that initially provoke some discomfort. And that's also where leaning on your colleagues can help a little bit. You know, I'm on a number of sex therapy listservs where people send questions like this all the time, you know, where it's, I've encountered this patient with this issue. I've never seen this before. Have other people dealt with it? And there's always, well, not always, but often a flood of responses that comes through where people share their perspectives and insights. And so I think leaning on your colleagues a little bit can be very helpful in cases like this. Now, since I brought up the topic of edge play, we know that some people engage in very intense forms of kink, including some kinds that may pose a serious risk of injury or harm. And that raises the question of how do you balance not shaming a client for their sexuality with ensuring their health and safety? And it's complicated because when it comes to assessing how much risk is too much, you know, that's an inherently subjective thing because everybody has a different threshold or tolerance for risk. So what's the role of the therapist here and how do you navigate situations like this? 
I think that is such an important question because I don't think it is a skill most therapists naturally have when it comes to kink play. I actually do a workshop. I teach a class on how to do a kink affirming risk assessment and how to have those conversations with clients because often our gut reaction is that's scary. You could get hurt. You need to stop it. And that is an ethical violation. Our clients have a right to self-determination. Our clients have a right to their own risk framework, even if that is very different than ours. And then the flip side of that is some very kink-aware or kink-affirming clinicians, some clinicians who might be kinky themselves, might be very familiar with that practice and want to jump into we might think to ourselves, we're doing psychoeducation, right? How to be safer with breath play, how to be safer with, and that is itself an ethical challenge. And we expose ourselves to liability in that case, because we don't want to be in a position where we are telling a client that a dangerous behavior is okay, or that if they just listen to us, they'll be safer, your professional liability insurance would not be happy with you if something were to go sideways there, and you probably would be liable. So it's walking this tightrope between being affirming and being supportive without necessarily offering guidance and information that falls outside your scope of practice as a mental health provider. So for me, what that looks like is a lot of motivational interviewing, It's a lot of asking questions and being curious and helping the client develop their own risk framework. It's noticing where they might be perhaps a little too rosy in their outlook or a little too trusting in a situation. You know, we can ask those questions. What we don't want to do is either say you cannot and never should do that Or this is how you do that safely if you do it my way. So motivational interviewing, guiding the the client through their own autonomous process, documenting the heck out of those conversations, including the fact that you did not offer specific guidance, and then asking the clients what education they're doing. Where are you learning about this? What are you reading? Are there safety resources that you could access in the community before you try this thing? And encouraging them to seek out that knowledge without putting yourself in the role of being the safety gatekeeper, because that is going to be a problem no matter which side of the gate you fall on. Such a good answer and so many important things to think about. So I'm really glad that you offer trainings and workshops on this because obviously it's not addressed in most training programs to begin with, but we need people who can teach this kind of stuff because there are very complex issues to grapple with here to make sure that you're not doing harm to your client and also to reduce that risk of liability that you were talking about as well. Now, based on your own experiences or those of other therapists you've spoken with, are there any other common challenges or issues that you've seen that often come up in sex therapy with kinky clients? And I know you've written whole books about this, so I'm sure you could go on for days, but are there just like a couple of things that come to mind that are particularly common issues? So the two most common that come to my mind are, first of all, the fact that not every kinky client that comes to you is coming to you because they are kinky. That the most common reason a kinky person will come to therapy 
is the fact that they have things going on in their life that they need to work through and talk about like everybody else. And one of the biggest sort of clinical missteps I see people making is trying to draw a line between sort of the presenting problem that brings them in the room and the fact that they are kinky. And to me, unless the client tells me, my kink is causing distress in this area, or this problem is impacting my ability to have the kink life that I want, I don't make those assumptions. Sometimes what our clients need is an anxiety therapist who's not going to assume that they're anxious because they're submissive, or a trauma therapist who's not going to assume that they're dominant because they're trying to control everything. Being a kink-affirming therapist often just means recognizing that not everything is about kink (laughs) and that a kinky client is more than just a kinky person. And that is a huge need in the kink community. You know, overwhelming enthusiasm, sort of like this romancing the kink in therapy, can be its own form of stigma because it doesn't let your kinky client be a human in the room. It reduces them down to their relationship model or their sensory expression. And for a lot of people, that's not what they need. They need a therapist that's not going to pathologize them but might also recognize that what's bringing them to you has nothing to do with what they do at home with their partner. So that's number one. Number two is for sex therapists that do couples work, there is very little to nothing out there on mixed desire relationships where one partner is vanilla and one partner is kinky. Foreshadowing, I am writing about that and that book comes out next year. specifically on working with vanilla and kinky clients. But that is a huge need that we're often underprepared to address. And when those couples come into therapy, often the sex therapist's reaction is to either shame one for not being open-minded enough or shame the other by saying, you're really going to have to rein it in and make them more comfortable. And the skills and the ability to work with partners who might have very, very different erotic desires or relational desires is a really important need that most of us don't yet have. Such a great answer. I love everything that you have to say. But yes, those are super, super important issues. And, you know, it has me thinking about how on the show I've talked about sexual desire discrepancies a million times, but it's usually more in the context of one partner just wanting more sex than the other. But there can also be those discrepancies about the type or kind of sex that you want. And that requires a totally different solution. So I'm very excited for your next book. Something you talk about in your current book that I found to be particularly interesting was that there seems to be a higher percentage of neurodivergent individuals in the kink community than would be expected based on population prevalence. And many neurodivergent individuals have difficulty reading or inferring social cues. And you argue that this may be one of the reasons why they're drawn to kink and BDSM. It's because it's this very structured environment where the expectations are clearly communicated. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and sort of that intersection between neurodivergence and kink? I think as awareness of how neurodivergent folks move through the world and form relationships, you know, as as more research comes out and as the world starts to kind of shift and adapt and make space for that, I think we're going to see more people coming into kink spaces because it is a little bit more, I'm going to say literal, 
than some other like vanilla dating world or the mainstream dating world. I mean, there are whole books written by pickup artists on like how to game dating, right? And how to be subtle or how to use negging or any number of sort of conversational techniques that have a lot of subtext and nuance and a lot of gamesmanship to them. And a lot of neurodivergent people don't do well with that. The subtlety of social cues, the nuances of playing with language can be confusing. And so being in a setting or in an environment where the default expectation is, if you want something, you're going to clearly explain what you want. And if you don't want something, you're going to very clearly say no to that, can feel really comfortable and safe for neurodivergent people. I've been to conferences, both sexual, sexuality and not, where they'll give out wristbands, right? Where it'll be like, red means no touching, green means um, you can hug me all you want, yellow means ask first. Things as simple as that for a neurodivergent person can be really, really helpful, (laughs) Because A, it lets them broadcast their own comfort level without needing to explain it a million times over. And it also provides them that sort of very literal, very graphic, very accessible cue that they need to navigate a space. And so I think just the mechanics of how the BDSM community interacts and the way that kinksters form relationships and agreements, even temporary agreements, really plays into the strengths and needs of neurodiverse folks. Yeah. And, you know, it's just yet another example of one of the ways in which kink can be very beneficial to people in a lot of ways, and also how it can be very inclusive of diversity in other aspects. So for kinky folks who are looking for a therapist who is well-equipped to support them, it can be a little bit tricky. I mean, as we've mentioned, you know, therapists don't often have a lot of formal training in this area. But one of the other complexities is that if you go do an online search, you're going to see a lot of different words getting thrown around on websites. You know, I did a quick search before the show and you see some people say they're kink-friendly or kink-informed or kink-aware or kink-affirming. So I think it can probably be a little confusing to people. So do these terms all mean the same thing? And what should you look for as a prospective client? So, you know, as much as I in my work try to sort of encourage a standardization of language and ideas, I am not the final arbiter of all things therapy. And at the end of the day, that's just how I frame things up. So ultimately, you know, things like kink-friendly versus kink-aware versus kink-informed, they don't necessarily have a standard meaning. They're going to be the language of whatever course or program that person went through. And sometimes that doesn't even necessarily reflect any additional training. It just means, yeah, I'm cool with that. May or may not mean anything. So I encourage people that really want a kink aware, kink-affirming clinician to start with the kink-affirming professionals directory that the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom puts out. I love it because there's lots and lots of mental health providers on there, but I also love it because there's all kinds of providers on there. If you want a kink-affirming medical provider, you can find it. If you want a poly-friendly family law attorney, you can find it. So it's a great directory because the people that are on there have self-selected beyond some search engine buzzwords. And then also, you know, ASECT is a great place to find kink-affirming care, 
Because part of the process of becoming a sex therapist is at least some baseline inclusion of information around BDSM, kink, ethical non-monogamy, all those things. So even if you fall into that category of people who don't necessarily want to talk about your kink in therapy or don't necessarily have an issue with your fetish, but you want a therapist that will let you work through your divorce or your substance use problem or any number of things without making your kink a centerpiece, a sex therapist that's kink trained can be really beneficial for that because they're going to have an understanding already of when that information is relevant and when it's not. And you can trust that they are fully equipped to navigate those sort of general mental health things from a kink affirming place. I appreciate you sharing those resources, and I'll be sure to drop a link to each of them in the show notes. Now, I know we're running short on time, but let's talk about sort of the other side of this, which is for the therapists and psychologists who want to get more training in kink and BDSM because they just didn't get it when they were in school. What advice or recommendations would you offer for them in order to become a kink-affirming therapist? The self-serving answer would be to say, check my website because I'm training all over the place. (laughs) Um, But honestly, one of my favorite recommendations is to look to the community itself. There are wonderful books written by people who are kinky that might not necessarily be clinicians, but who can speak to their lived experience. And it's tricky because they can be kind of hard to find because often, especially in you know our modern 2022 age, people can self-publish online. So I will send you some good resources. Anton Fullman is a great writer. There are community creations that will be invaluable to clinicians who want to understand their kinky clients. And then also I encourage clinicians, and I say this with a certain degree of hesitation, clinicians to go to BDSM and other sexuality conferences. When there's an educational event near you, go and learn. Now, I say with some hesitation because as kink has entered the mainstream, those events have gotten more and more just sort of casual outsiders coming in because they want to watch. And that's not appropriate. And that's not okay. (laughs) But if you are a mental health provider or a medical provider who is working with kinky clients or who suspects you have kinky people on your caseload and you want to understand their lives, their relationships, their practices without asking your clients to do the work of educating you, then go to those community resources and learn and educate yourself. There are several programs around the country, sex therapy and otherwise, that offer varying forms and frankly, varying quality of kink mental health content. And I'm not going to speak to those today because I really do think that one of the best ways to learn is from the people that we want to serve. So I would encourage you to look for, you know, a local munch, just go and and hang out and listen to what people talk about and hear about their lives and experiences. Read content created by the community. It's okay to have a FetLife profile if you are not kinky. You can go and read other people's blog posts. You can go and read other people's experiences and you can inform yourself that way. And I think that for the vast majority of clinicians, that is the best way to move towards a deeper, more nuanced understanding of kink and BDSM. Thank you for sharing that idea. I think that that's really helpful. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Stephanie. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your latest book? 
So my books are on Amazon and Bookshop. Either one will have them. My practice website is bounddtogethercounseling.com. That will get you links to my media, my contact, my socials, everything. My partner and I do a podcast ourselves on the intersection of sexuality and technology that's once a week, and that's called Securing Sexuality. So if they just like to hear me ramble like I've done with you today, (laughs) they can come and listen to me talk to my hacker husband about tech and sex. That sounds fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, Stephanie. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.